Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. Normally, you hear me at the end of each episode thanking my Patreon team for all they do. But as we slowly close out Season 4 of Context Matters, I really have to stop and reflect on how amazing this team really is. People like the Sion family, who are joining me in Israel in a couple weeks— Yay! Natalie and Doug McGee and Lisa Nickel, they make spending all the hours on producing this podcast actually sustainable. So thank you all. This week at the podcast table, we get to sit with Dr. Lynn Kohick. She is a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary, along with holding the responsibility of provost and dean of academic affairs. And also, I mentioned last week, but she is leading the development of a new MA program in women's studies. What does that mean, you ask? I had the same question to pose to Dr. Kohick. So lean in and enjoy the conversation. We have an MA in Women and Theology, and we are launching a Doctorate of Women, Theology, and Leadership starting this coming fall. Yeah, so I am really excited about it. The MA in Women and Theology is an approach that looks at the biblical text and thinks theologically about women and their the, the historical women of the biblical text, also the reality of women that have served over these 2,000 years in church history, and then the complexity of trying to live out our responsibilities and our gifting in the context today where women are leading in a lot of different ways. And I would say that really without, I mean, I work at Northern, but this is also really true. It's not just kind of the hype that you might think I'd be saying. Northern really is a place where women just can feel completely comfortable where they are. And the students that I've had who are men have been incredibly supportive, not from a a position of strength, like patronizing kind of thing, but incredibly supportive from a sense of, I want to grow alongside you. I know I can learn from you. And so it's an incredibly supportive environment. There was a student who took one of my classes, women in the early church, and she is actually, she just took that class as an elective. She's actually enrolled and finishing up a program elsewhere. And she said, this class was like pure oxygen. Mm -hmm. And what she meant was not only were we able to focus on women and the complexity of learning about women from the historical record and thinking theologically about what it means to do ministry in a female body alongside other humans who are in male bodies, but the supportive environment that she just didn't have to defend herself there was just not a question of like, what, why are you here? You know? And my guess is Cindy, that you've been in spaces where you realize, yeah, people are just kind of looking 
a little bit sideways at me, like, okay, you know, I mean, we're happy that you're here, but do you really belong here? Mm-hmm. That's just not the case at Northern. And, you know, I've been a lot of different places, spoken at places, taught at a couple of institutions or spoke at institutions. And I, I can honestly say Northern has this true, deep, abiding, welcome spirit for women, wherever they are. I mean, we're not going to, we support women in whatever leadership roles they do at their church, but we're not trying to mandate a particular doctrinal position. We're trying to say, we want to encourage and and equip your gifting. So doing an MA in women in theology is a way to say, let's really focus on what has not been focused on before. So, or at least not that much, uh, try to raise that to the surface. And then with the, that's the MA and with the D-min, there's a little bit more emphasis on leadership because of course, that's the people who are in an MDiv program are leaders in their sphere. So we try to sharpen those skills as well. It's so beautiful. I think I've been in so many environments and people come up to me and say, I'm in the process of deciding if you should do what you're doing. What are your thoughts on that? I'm like, well, I think I should be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> Those are my thoughts. You know, but that it's like you're constantly being, and people tend to think it's not a big deal to come up to you and say, I don't think who you are is a purely spiritual being because of what you're choosing to do. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, sometimes they are as direct as what you say. Yeah. And then there are other times where they're not. I remember being at a conference and there were about five men that were speaking, some, you know, very well-known leaders. And I get it. This was years ago. I, you know, I was more of a mid-level scholar at this time, you know, but there were these men who were going to speak. And I was also given a keynote, or not a keynote, but one of the breakout sessions, all the men, including those doing the breakout sessions were to be part of a panel discussion that was going to launch, but not me. And so when I realized this, I said to the people in charge quietly, you know, in a, in a hallway, I just want to tell you, I'm very uncomfortable of this. I do feel like there's an unevenness here (laughs) that all the men are going to be on this panel and I'm not, they say, Oh, we're really sorry. We're really sorry the travel schedule that you had, we weren't thinking you'd be here in time, all that. Okay. So as I'm getting mic'd up to do this and they're doing, they're miking up people individually, I finish with my testing and I walk to the back of the auditorium and the guy who was doing this said, yeah, that's kind of interesting to see you up there. You know, it made me think of the Sesame Street song. I said, huh? You know how one of these things is not like the other. Oh boy. I know. And the next line is one of these things just doesn't belong. Uh Now, he didn't say that to me, but that's the next line of the song. And I thought, wow, that (laughs) like that's what's going on in your head. I haven't even spoken yet in this panel. It certainly didn't make me feel real confident. But yeah, that's an example. And like you say, we can pull a number of them up where people just tell us in different ways, you don't belong here. And that's not the case at Northern. I know some of your colleagues quite personally, and Mm -hmm. I think they have held that view for a long time of looking at women and, and just not modern day women, biblical women even, and giving them space to be 
complex creatures, like not just like, here's this character, she does this, <laughs> but yeah. you know, she is a mother and a sister and is also like all these other complicated things. And she's fallible, just like all the other people are fallible. And she's righteous and a really good example of discipleship, just like all those other people. I think we kind of exactly. miss it. Yeah. So kudos to you all for what you're creating. It is very exciting to watch. Well, thank you. And I, I also want to just put a plug in if I can, and that is for the Center for Women in Leadership, which is that piece of the program at Northern that says to women, okay, maybe you don't need a degree. Maybe you're not interested in that, but you want to be in a networking community. You want to be in a mentoring or peer relational community. We do webinars that just help women either thinking theologically or biblically or looking practically at how do I enhance the calling that God has given me, the gifts that he's given me. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of stuff at the Center for Women in Leadership, and, and you can check out our website with that as well. We had a conversation on your podcast not that long ago, and one of the things that we talked about, I was hoping to maybe nuance or talk about it here as well, is the difference between the Jewish female experience and maybe the Greco-Roman female experience. And so let's put it in the in terms of their religious context, what, what Jewish women could do in a synagogue versus what Greco-Roman women could do in their temples. So can we kind of tease out what, what were women allowed to do in their spiritual life? And then how does that also help us when we read epistles like Ephesians or any of these others where Paul is addressing a mixed community and therefore there's Jewish women in the audience and women who come from a, like a Gentile um, experience. So can you like tease out a sure. couple maybe things related to that? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, I think as you mentioned before, there's going to be differences based on wealth and socioeconomic status where, where someone was in the community. But aside from that, or alongside that, the Jewish women were educated. And I don't mean by that, that they learned to read and write. What I mean is that they heard the word of God every week over and over again in the synagogues, as James tells us in Acts 15, every week Moses is read, right? In all the cities in the Roman empire. And so the Jewish girls and the Jewish boys, their brothers, grew up hearing the same stories. And their families, I think we can safely assume no matter where they lived, would have a Shabbat meal. So they would welcome in the Sabbath and they would rest then on the Sabbath. And so that was a weekly event. There's no pagan analog for that. Hmm. And there's really no sense of like pagan scripture in that kind of sense. So a huge difference between Jewish women and the Gentile women who then came into the church is the Jewish women had lots of education and they knew, they knew who the one true God is and they knew the main, main stories of the people of God. And so that, that would be one big difference. And that's why I think that when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and he says, let a woman learn, which is more of, it's a command. 
actually it's you don't hear that so much in the English translation, but he's commanding Timothy to figure out a way within his community where they can teach these new newly converted Gentile women the word of God, because they don't have that education. And then he asks that uh, these women don't teach. I don't permit a woman to teach. That really could better be translated, I am not permitting a woman to teach. He says the same thing in chapter one to men who are teaching wrong things, endless Mm -hmm. genealogies, and that sort of hogwash, (laughs) we might say, although they would not say hogwash, (laughs) because they're not going to have pigs around. (laughs) So Paul doesn't want anyone to teach the gospel falsely or false things about God, whether they're men or women. But the solution for Timothy in terms of the women in his congregation is that they have to be educated. Pagan women did, Gentile pagan women did participate very much in the religious life, but religious life was based much more on festivals and on giving a votive offering. So coming with a request to the temple or shrine and making your request. Of course, you're flying blind here because there's no clear teachings from the deities the way that the one true God has given his word to his people. Thus, there's a a real emphasis on ecstatic experiences. And we see this coming out in the Corinthian correspondence where Paul needs to say, look, you know, it's fine to speak in tongues, to, you know, speak prophetically, all of that, but God is a God of order. And so these, it's not like a possession where it overtakes you. This is the Holy Spirit in you, not just some spirit in you. So it'd be a couple that I I would say that's probably one of the main differences that then has to be worked out in the life of the church. Yeah, it's one of the many, many values of your book is just to help not only look at and allow the lives of women to be complicated, but to say, and different women in different places have different complications. And so therefore, maybe that variety of complication needs to be in the background or our foreground as we start looking at these passages of Paul, along with the classic read all of Paul, not just those little bits of Paul, because he he seems to really love the leadership of women in some of his other writings as well. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got Priscilla who teaches Apollos. I mean, so just knowing that or knowing that Phoebe delivers the letter of Romans to the Roman church and reads it and likely exegetes it, answers their questions. I mean, she's the first commentator of Romans. So you think just of those two women who Paul speaks so highly of, and then you read that injunction of, I'm not permitting a woman to teach, and you realize, okay, either Paul is not consistent, and I, I don't believe that, I think he is consistent. So therefore, if he's consistent, and he praises women for teaching and exegeting and preaching, then there's something going on in Ephesus that needs fixed. Yeah. And that's what 
it's important for us to understand what, you know, what that might be. Of course, all of this in Ephesus is happening in the shadow of the huge temple of Artemis. Yeah. And her shadow was a long one. It was very influential. The whole cult was very influential in, in Ephesus. And the we know that uh, of some of the practices and the excesses that her devotees practiced. And that you're raised in Ephesus. That's what you see all the time to then now be pulled into and drawn towards the worship of the one true God. It's going to call into question things that before used to be evidence of piety, but now are not. So evidence of piety for women at times was to dress extravagantly and even somewhat seductively for one particular festival where it was a chance to maybe meet your husband, but there was a seductiveness to it. And it had to do with arranging your hair in a certain way, braiding and that kind of thing. And so I don't think it's an accident that a little bit earlier in chapter two of First Timothy, Paul talks about how one comports themselves in worship. He asks men not to you know, raise their fist in anger, right? But to lift holy hands in prayer and for women to dress in a certain way not like how they used to do when they participated in the Artemis worship, but in a way that expresses the modesty of any Christian, man or woman, you know, because we value modesty and uh, propriety that way. Thanks. I love those examples. I think that it's, again, just amazing. And it's really good to be reminded not everything is intuitive when we read it the first time through. In scripture, things are, we have to give them space to be a little complicated. Uh, One of the things I've been thinking about a lot over the last month or a month and a half is in the modern church, drawing lines for what women are allowed or not allowed to do with that kind of lens, or because the church has been involved in a lot of these kind of arguments internally and amongst themselves it means sometimes that we turn our eye towards text that has women involved in the text and we read Mm -hmm. it right away in she's allowed to do this or not allowed to do this. And sometimes like with Luke in Luke's gospel, he puts men and women together, pairs them together. And it's never because this is what men can do and women can do. It's just a different version of people speaking towards who Jesus is. And So I wonder sometimes if we're losing things by not just letting women be another, yet another example of something. And I am just curious if in the classes that you've taught, is there a woman or a story that involves a woman where everyone makes it about gender, but it doesn't necessarily have to be where she can just be her own example of a disciple, a teacher, an apostle? Sure. How long do you have? Yeah. <laughs> I have some examples. Um, so uh, Martha in John chapter 11, with the Lazarus passing, goes out to meet Jesus, who is on his way to Bethany. And she goes out, she talks to him. And she said, if you had been here, my brother you know, would not have died. Yet even now, I know whatever you ask will be given. Right. And Jesus pushes a little bit more here on resurrection. And she said, I know that my brother will rise again on the last day. So Martha is convinced of the Pharisaic position over against the Sadducee position on the bodily resurrection of the dead. 
So she's had enough education and perhaps also through Jesus's teachings as well that, in other words, I want to bring home the fact that believing in bodily resurrection is a position that you take at this time. It's not just assumed every Jew believed this. No, it, it was a position that she took. So she already is thinking theologically. And then Jesus just leads her straight with, I'm the resurrection and the life. That is one of the most profound self-revelations of Jesus in all the gospels. And he says it to Martha. But do we think of Martha as someone who is theologically hungry and who can have that big meal of I'm the resurrection and the life and like process that and be like, oh yeah, okay, I can digest this. No, we think of Martha as the one, hey, Jesus, can you make Mary help me? You know, that's what we think of Martha. And that's not even what's going on in Luke in that story, but that's our interpretation of that story. And so because of that, we don't see Martha as having any kind of theological acumen, interest, any of that. And so we miss using Martha as an example of discipleship for both men and women today. And not just her faith that Jesus can do whatever he sets himself to do, but that she can enter into a theological, deep theological discussion with him. We just don't, our imagination about women and theology just is not there. Great example is a Samaritan woman. She's seen as sexually suspect at best, or you know, a prostitute, a loose woman at worst. And we just build this whole thing around, you know, her being at the well at noon and how somehow she's an outcast because of that, with no, truly no textual evidence anywhere that being <laughs> and we don't even know if she's by herself. I mean, there could be other people around. It's just not. It's not the focus of of John. You know, there could be people passing by and, you know, they're not like in a isolated spot. Right. Right. And yeah, all of this from the man I'm with now is not my husband, which Jesus says is true, but doesn't say, therefore, I know you're a sinner. Go and sin no more. Like he will say to others, both men and women, when they clearly need to change their path. Instead, what she sees is you're a prophet. You've told me everything I've ever done. And that means what's happened in my life, not all the sin that I've done. If we understand her as someone who's faced a lot of hardships, then we're able to see the amazing teaching in this gospel. We're able to, she will demonstrate for us an inquisitive disciple who wants to ask the Lord, look, I've heard, you know, Mount Gerizim's fine, but really, you just say, Jerusalem, what's going on? And then Jesus says, well, you know, it's coming when people will worship God in spirit and in truth. And I I just think she had to be someone so smart to not just go, what? (laughs) Because at this time, as you well know, as an archaeologist, everyone, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, pagan, they're offering animal sacrifices. It's just a thing. It's not spirit and truth. It's animal sacrifices. It's libations. It's actual stuff that you put on a fire. And Jesus changed, you know, he just says that that's not really the end point. Here's the end point. And she seems to, to get that. That's amazing. Yeah. Then she goes back to her town and they all believe her. And I just cannot believe that there's any town in the ancient world that would have said, oh, here comes our prostitute. And she's going to tell us who the Messiah is. 
and it we're just, going to listen to her right away. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They don't say, wow, who is this person? They She completely changed like they would have with the Gerizim demoniac, yeah. right? It's not that kind of change that happened. She comes back and she, I think, talks like she has in the past. She's talked theologically. She has questions. Things. They know that she's a she's deeply interested in religion. And so this is characteristic of her to talk in this category. And then she says, you've got to meet this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. Well, they know her story. They know that she's had five husbands and that's, that's a remarkable number. And no one is just going to guess that. So they're already very impressed with Jesus's prophetic abilities. Mm. And they're, they're impressed, I think, with her character. And so they believe her testimony and they say, yeah, we got to meet this guy. Meanwhile, the disciples have been in the town. They've not mentioned Jesus to anybody. Nobody's getting saved. Nothing's happening. And they come back to Jesus and he t- says to them, the fields are ripe for the harvest. And that's the point of all of this, right? And yeah. exhibit one is a Samaritan woman, right? That's what I want for you all. But when it becomes all about, is she sinful? How sinful is she? We miss the whole of Jesus's teaching that, you know, he's the savior of the world as the Samaritans attest to, and uh, that the fields are ripe for harvest. So those would be two examples, I think, of women showing theological sensitivity and interest that we fail to see. But if we did see it, they would be great models for discipleship for men and women today. Yeah. And I love you chose both of those because one is Jewish and one is Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there could be such diversity among, just like there was diversity even among the disciples and the people that Jesus interacted with who recognized and understood who he was. And I just, yeah, so great. I have one last question because you did a follow-up book to the women in the Greco-Roman world, that is the Christian women in the patristic world. So, uh, and I did a podcast episode on this, but it was quite a while ago. But when we're in that patristic world, and now we're speaking quite specifically of Christian women in this patristic world, is their experience quite different than the women we would read about in the New Testament? I think there are some differences. And I want to give a a uh, shout out to my co-author, Amy Brown Hughes, who works more with the women in this uh, later in this period, Constantine and beyond. So 300s, 400s, up into the early 500s. That's her, uh, that's her area. And once you get past Constantine and Christianity is illicit religion, then you have even more change. But if we look before that, we look in the second century up to 300, 325, that's the age of the martyrs. Mm. And so while you have martyrdom, obviously Stephen's martyr in the New Testament, that becomes much more pronounced in the following 150 years. And women and men both modeled that ultimate sacrifice for their faith. And the church, while there weren't a lot of women or men martyred, their deaths were so significant, it became really the way that Christians understood themselves as followers of Jesus. I am a Christian. And if that meant that with that testimony, I was going to die a horrible death in the arena, so be it. And women's testimony, it was as powerful 
as men's testimony. So one of the earliest martyrs, and her life is really shrouded, I think, in myth and hagiography, you know, kind of adoring the saints. Her name is Thecla, and her story is told in the Acts of Paul and Thecla. She's such an important figure that you have even 300 years later, 200 years later, women who are named Thecla in honor of this woman who gave her life, although the the story is not a typical martyrdom story, but it captured the imagination of people being so committed and single-minded. You even have a man deciding that he's going to model his life with the devotion that Thecla did. So Thecla wasn't just a model for women. It was a model of faithfulness for men and women. And that's what the martyrs, the female martyrs were. They were admired by both men and women in the congregations. And most of the martyrs were Gentiles because in the second century, you began to have the balance shift in the church to have more Gentiles and fewer Jews percentage-wise. So that, that I think the it's a hard period in some ways for me to enter into, for a lot of people today to enter into that mindset of martyr. It's not hatred of their body, although it can kind of seem like that, but it's more they are so convinced of the resurrection of the body that they are willing to put this body aside and not commit idolatry or you know, honoring the emperor with a pagan right. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for your time today, for agreeing to be on this podcast. It's always so much fun to talk with you. And I footnote you in a lot of my own writing. So it's a privilege to have you here and explaining some of the, the contextual world uh, for the listeners of this podcast. So thanks for being here. You are quite welcome, Cindy, anytime. And I know I've, I've loved what you've done in just bringing uh, to life the world of the first century, that space where Jesus walked, because it, it does, it then just opens up the biblical text. And yeah. that's really the, the point, isn't it? That we're yeah. just um, more faithful followers. So thanks so much for having yeah. me on the podcast. Thank you all for joining us at the podcast table today. I'll add all kinds of links in the episode notes if you want to check out what Dr. Kohik is writing and creating, including a soon-to-be-released video series on Seminary Now about women in the New Testament. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. Peter Lords and a Sycamore Sound created the music. And my super amazing Patreon team makes all of this sustainable. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 